The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinga, as always, joined by my lovely co-host, Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany? Things are going great for me. Not that I have particularly anything much to share, whereas, Brandon, like I think maybe Wednesday was a bit of a big day for you. It was indeed a big day, so I turned 50 years old, which is <laughs> old. <laughs> So my wife put together a pretty nice event for me. So we actually went to a restaurant and I didn't realize, but Waterloo Station, if you've been there recently, has changed dramatically. There's a whole new section or wing they've added onto Waterloo Station called the Sidings. And it's like a social area as well in the sense of like they have cool restaurants and bars, like Brewdog is there. Uh, in any event, there's a restaurant called the Rosarium and the Rosarium is inspired by Alice in Wonderland. They have like the White Rabbit pie you can have for like a, as a main actually as an rabbit and so it's all is inspired it? like that this is like the uk thing again right because you cannot buy rabbit pie in north america I mean, you literally it's almost like a wrong thing to do i think in some ways whereas here rabbit pie <laughs> why not <laughs> so that was good fun and my wife earlier in the day with the kids she had uh, you know we had a cake and the you know the kids love cake obviously as part of that uh, cake in the morning, she bought a World Wrestling Entertainment ring with Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant figures alongside of it. And my wife knows that historically, when I was a kid, I used to love professional wrestling, in particular, you know, the, the late 80s stuff. So that was good fun. My son, he absolutely loves the ring and the two wrestlers. He's wrestling with them nonstop right now. So that's been a, a big hit in, the, in this case. But in any event, it just made me reflect a little bit on turning 50 and I guess the reflections around that. And one thing that occurred to me was, and this is going to sound silly as I describe this, but even as a 50-year-old, when I feel unhappy about you know circumstances, my life in some dramatic way, I look for comfort as we all do. And you know, everyone has their comfort thing that's soothing to them, I guess, in some sense. And I think for me, the soothing thing is to go back to 1980s pro wrestling and watch wrestling matches. And I think it's just like going back to the 14-year-old Brandon to make me feel better about my life, basically, in some way, where it's like the peak of your happiness when you're a 14-year-old kid watching wrestling in this case. How do you find 1980s wrestling? Is it on YouTube? Or is it actually on TV? Well, it's funny that you should ask. Because <laughs> I didn't realize this is like accessible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So the World Wrestling Entertainment, uh, you pay 10 pounds a month and they have the entire archive of like all pro wrestling since the beginning of time, basically, across every promotion you can possibly imagine, all for 10 pounds a month. So I've got an actual live subscription <laughs> where you can go back to archives. Does that mean you're feeling sad a lot that you need 10 pounds of wrestling a month? <laughs> As with some subscriptions, like I, I never canceled because I periodically go back to it. So it's kind of embarrassing, I guess. But yeah, I've got a live subscription to WWE. So to complement, of course, my Disney and my Netflix and what have you. So what do we have today? So we have a good topic, which is revenue generation and the role of the COO. And this is not talked about a lot, but it's obviously extraordinarily important when it comes to organizations. And we've got the perfect guest for this and Pete Crosby. 
He is a revenue coach and a revenue guru. So before we get to that, a bit of back and forth between Bethany and myself, and I guess the question to you, Bethany, to kick us off with is really the basic question here, the core question, which is how can a COO best support revenue generation? So I think there's the obvious things like owning OKRs, making sure everybody stays focused. And then there are also some more tactical day-to-day things you can do. One is to think about how to make selling as easy as possible. So how do you access the right people? How do you collect the right data, but not too much data? And then an area that I don't think people think about that often, but how do your customers have as friction-free an experience with you as possible? Because like Amazon doesn't send you really beautiful packaging. They don't, you don't feel special when you get a package, but you keep going back because one, there's everything in the world. And two, it's super easy to return something if there's a problem. And that is when I was CCO, I used to do the inductions and was talking to everybody in terms of being customer centric. So if you're in finance, you can think about how easy is our invoice to read? How easy is it to contact finance if there's a problem? How easy is it to pay us? If you're in legal, does the contract make sense? Do we only have the terms that are necessary? How easy is it to sign a contract? How easy is it to renew a contract? So if you really think about and map every single customer touch point, and normally people just map like from lead to close to maybe the renewal and upsell, but entirely from a revenue perspective, if you look at every single customer touch point from a customer's perspective, you will discover things that are not sexy, that are driving your customers crazy, and you need to remove those points of friction. And you see that being part of the CO mandate? Yeah. Well, particularly if the COO is looking after back office and supporting functions, because all the supporting functions are like, oh, there's the OKR. We have nothing to do with that. And that's absolutely untrue. And it's not just trying to like massage a way of being important to the objective. If the objective is to close 5 million of ARR this month or this quarter or this year, depending on your size you fundamentally have a role of making that as easy as possible. And you should be thinking about that in every bit of your job. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And I think you're absolutely right. I think in particular with contracts, there is nothing worse than going through 8,000 red lines on a customer contract that were entirely unnecessary if you'd actually bothered to standardize a template that actually made tremendous sense in this case. you know. And I think the examples that you give are all quite pertinent as well. Well, and I think there's also, we tend to make the mistake of building our processes to make our lives as easy as possible. And we forget about our customers. And really the entire point of a business is to find, win, and retain customers. Otherwise there just is no business. And so everything that we do should be with the view to customers, not to how to make our internal lives easier. But we forget that. Love it. So why don't we transition to our conversation with uh, Pete and let's do that. Now, we all know that in one way or another, the future of work is distributed, but not everyone knows how to do it well. That's creating friction around trust and alignment and making it harder for operational leaders like you to achieve your biggest milestones. Sound familiar? Well, happily, the team at WorkTrip are tackling this problem. They help distributed teams to connect in real life. WorkTrip curates the world's best offsite venues and facilitators so you don't have to. And they also turn all the latest research on high performance teams into simple, actionable guidance, offsite programs, and surveys for you to use. 
For a 150-person company, this delivers on average 700,000 pounds of value in team productivity each year. And with customers like Molten Ventures and Talentful, you'll be in great company. If you're thinking of booking an offsite or team gathering, Bethany and I would totally suggest giving WorkTrip a go. Go to WorkTrip.com to get started. That's WorkTrip.com with two Ps and make the future of work happen. I am delighted to welcome Pete Crosby to the podcast. Pete, like me, has not opted out, but opted different. And so after his time as a CRO for both Striptease and Ametria, amongst others, he started his own consultancy and coaching business. So I can't think of anybody better placed to talk about the market that we've been in, the struggles that we've had both in the UK and globally with a downturn and the difficulty getting funding than Pete. So how do we grow efficiently and effectively in this new world? Well, I mean, as you know, I'm not a CEO, but I work with many. And if I take the biggest lesson from all of the people that I'm working with, it's winning is all about focus. And I don't think there can be much more important topic for the CEO to handle than focus. What is it that we are supposed to be doing? Why are we doing more than two or three things? And how do we ensure that every department that is central to the revenue strategy is only focused on those things? And every department that is there to enable, so people, operations, finance, legal, is ensuring that that is as smooth and as efficient as possible. If you think of it as a kind of spinning flywheel, the job of operations is in my view at least, is to make sure that when you spin that wheel round that it doesn't encounter friction, it doesn't spin off, it doesn't fly off into middle of nowhere, it doesn't spin out of control. And so making sure that that happens is all about focus and taking away all the rubbish that happens in an organisation that means that we can't focus on what's really important. Okay, so when you first talked focus, I thought you meant like focus on a single ICP, focus on a single vertical or proposition, but you also mean internally, like removing all of the friction, make it easy to contract, make it easy to do business, make it easy to access the people that you need to access to win business? All the way through. But the first thing that you said is exactly right. What I work on with all of my executives is 80% of their time should be spent on no more than three objectives. That's what we tend to call core value. And that means we all have to do context, we all have to do our expenses, and we all have to do the other 20% at some point. But if you think about a standard five-day week, that means that four days, in theory, are going to be spent on the core. It sounds so easy to say, but how many diaries do you look at and you see it rammed full of meetings? There's no time for preparation, there's no time for strategic thinking, there's no time for focus. And if you think about the more practical aspects of being a CEO, making sure that we're efficient, it would be much more efficient if the only meetings that we had were focused on what was really important. It would be more cost-effective if we were doing those things. We would find that we did things more quickly with more attention to detail and a higher chance of success. So that's why I would say that as a COO, there's this wonderful opportunity because you're not 
in most cases, at least, it's not true for every COO, I know, but in most cases, you are not responsible for one of those four core revenue functions, product, sales, marketing, customer success. And that means you have the opportunity to be the one that is um, making sure that that wheel is spinning as fluidly and as efficiently as possible. So so that makes a lot of sense. So job number one for the CEO in your book, just make sure the organization is focused. And by focus, we have two to three things that we're trying to get done. And this kind of harkens back to OKRs and making sure that the company's aligned in the sense that they understand what those couple things are. So if that's the most important thing, can you maybe just give us any learnings you've had around that in terms of dealing with CEOs around that topic? What we know about a typical COO is that generally speaking, they index highly for logic and for organized thinking. Now, lots of CEOs do as well, but frequently you'll find that CEOs are, especially if they're doing this for the first time, or if they lean toward being an entrepreneur rather than a CEO, and they get incredibly excited every time a new idea comes along. And there's nothing wrong with that because that's what made them great in the first place. But as we grow, we have to reduce some of those tendencies and make sure we execute like crazy on the things that we've already identified and having that kind of individual in place to make sure that we stay back on track to make sure that we're keeping the score in addition to like freeing up that space to focus one thing that i've noticed a lot of good coos do is they ask the ceo when they have that kind of moment where they wake up at three o'clock in the morning like we should be doing this or what are we doing with AI? What's happening here? Instead of going to your product leader or nipping off to talk to your co-founder, go and talk to the COO, work it through with someone who's a bit more sober-minded. Doesn't mean we inhibit innovation. What it means is we remain focused and achieve the innovative things we already thought of before we move on to the next one. And if the idea is such a stroke of genius that it's time to move on, well, then what objective that we've currently got are we going to kill? in order to achieve this one. What are the elements, other elements from a CEO perspective where that CEO can really help you? And I guess the one that comes to mind is what Bethany mentioned, which is much more around practicalities around contracting processes, legal reviews, these sorts of things where the operations professional has a tremendous impact. So can you give us a bit of a flavor around that side of it in terms of uh, what you want from the CEO to do some of these tactical bits to ensure that we can truly unleash the commercial force of the organization? Yeah, exactly. So what we're looking for in the CIO here is systems thinking. And we're looking for someone who is able to look at, let's take the revenue department, my own department, as an example. How many COOs or VPs of sales do you know that get bogged down in operations and in dealing with um, sales ops or rev ops or implementing HubSpot or Salesforce or Gainsight or, or something like this? doesn't make any sense at all that that is handled by a revenue leader in almost all cases. Surely an expert such as a COO and their department should be handling that. So you talked about contracting. Well, how are we going to do contracting? What's the most efficient way to do contracting? What software do we need? What can we negotiate on in a contract? There are so many items that come into just this one process. In my opinion, Anything like that that a COO has better skills at should be taken over there. In fact, I mean, I would even put most of the RevOps team into the COO's department anyway so that the revenue leader can focus in an entirely different space. So having a COO who can look at processes where they should excel and can take that burden away from someone whose objectives are unlikely to be led by operations 
is much more important. As I said at the beginning, you have four key functions, any organization whose job it is to exclusively focus on revenue strategy, and the other departments are there as enablers, damn important enablers, you know, the people department is pretty flipping important, because if we haven't got great people, we lose. Nevertheless, they are enablers of those four core functions. And if the COO can remove anything that is not core to revenue, such as revenue operations, for the most part, then that's where I would be looking as a chief operating officer. That's really interesting because as a CRO, I was more of a COO ops thinking, and I would never have let go of RevOps and I would not have trusted it with anybody else. There you go. It's just like me. I'm like, oh, I trust everyone until they prove wrong. And then I'm like, except for maybe in RevOps, in which case <laughs> I'm going to hold on to it. And so I think you'd have to be handing that over to a COO who already understands the metrics that matter, who already understands the sales process. And so like a very commercial COO to own RevOps, I think. Otherwise, I wouldn't be comfortable doing it. I would just remove the word Rev and then we're left with Ops. And whilst I agree with you that in your case, Beth, you index highly for the kind of operative, logical thinking that is likely to be successful in that role, which is why you ended up doing so much of that. In general, as an organization scales up, let's take software stacks, for example. The majority of the software stack exceeds one department's boundaries. You know, if you're a VP of sales, you need to use Salesforce, but that needs to be used by the CFO as well. And it needs to be used by the chief customer officer. Is it right that a RevOps department run by the chief revenue officer should run Gainsight if the chief customer officer is the main user of that? Shouldn't products be in Salesforce and Gainsight every single day trying to understand closed lost reasons, trying to understand why customers are buying, why we're putting opportunities into the pipeline? And so it means that the CRO ends up becoming a manager of context if they're not careful. So I'm not for one moment saying a CRO doesn't ever have the skills to do that. Of course they do. But if you want to be a chief operating officer, like that position can exist too. You can go and do that. In my mind, the operations should be run by the COO. There is one small exception in the revenue department. And I think it's always important to have a strategic thinker by your side who you may well call a VP of RevOps. But remember that there are three different types of RevOps leader. There is the doer who is in the software, especially find this in an early stage startup. They are making reports and delivering reports and extremely important, but probably they're the lowest skilled of the, of the three. Then you've got the second level, which is a systems thinker. And the, the systems thinker, of course, in my view, should be in the operations team because they are that individual that can think about the interlocking systems that we are acquiring and has a bigger sense of objective than just someone who works for the revenue leader. After all, they will have a very specific focus they should do. But then there's this third level, which is a strategic thinker. And that is the person that before I go as a CRO to my board meeting, that strategic thinker should be like six weeks before I've done the board report, Pete, it's ready to go six weeks early. We've just got a few figures to fill in. Can you just check so you're happy with it? It's that kind of forward thinking that you want by your side and does need to be in your department because they're often your strategic sparring partner. But with that exception, as an organization grows, I would be personally moving as much operations into the operations department as I possibly okay. can. Okay, so one, one quick just practical question that occurs to me then. How do you structure that? Because obviously the VP of Revenue Operations, that is that strategy thinker, is running operations in that case. 
And you just said operations or RevOps should be reporting into the CEO in this case. So, but you also said that strategic thinker needs to be paired and reporting into the the CRO in this case. So maybe just help me resolve the the conflict. Absolutely, this is just a job title thing. So that strategic thinker that you have by your side as a COO, particularly once you get past a Series B round, is not going to own very much software stack at all. Ideally, they're going to own no software stack at all. They're going to be there to help you prepare for the next level. So you mentioned ICP earlier, Beth. Maybe they are thinking, in 18 months' time, what does the scope of the ICP need to be? That sort of the mapping of that, the using of the software, and then the accessing of the operations team to make sure that that dotted line they have to them delivers what is required. But the RevOps team, who at the operations team, sitting underneath the COO, they will be buying the software, making sure we have sufficient seats, making sure that the integrations work properly, providing a service, so making sure that everything is up to date and ready to go so that the revenue team can use it. In my view, anything you can take away from context to allow you to focus on core allows you to be a better leader. And of course, I'm not a fan of departmental thinking. Ultimately, as an organization, we should have a very small number of core objectives around which the entire executive team is aligned and everyone is subservient to those objectives. And it just so happens that in the sales team, our job is probably to go out and talk to customers and sign some contracts. But the goals are not sales goals and operations goals and product goals. This is the route to be in a siloed organization that can't move rapidly. Totally, 100% agree. And I have some tactical questions because this is definitely something that we came across as we scaled of who owns data quality. So is that sales? Because it's sales who's putting in the information and it's the strategic RevOps person who's trying to run reports and all the data is bad. But then who goes around making sure the data quality is right? And also who's thinking about the data structure? I think this is where my discomfort for having a COO own it comes in is I know which metrics in the funnel I want to be able to track. I know which extra fields need to be added in. I know the future reporting I need. And I would feel very uncomfortable handing that over to somebody who might not understand how to run a revenue team the way that I do. So how do you get those parts working and then operationalize it? When you were doing that role, were you also running marketing and customer success? Yeah. In which case, this can be a good exception because you are controlling three of the four central revenue departments. And naturally, the product one is very different in the way it addresses its output. So in your case, that's fine. But I still would prefer it in operations. But all of those marketing, sales, customer-focused organizations, if they're all reporting up to you, then you're going to have a very joined-up approach. But you must know lots of organizations where there's a CRO who actually is handling mostly just sales. You'll have a CMO. Um, you may even have product marketing stuck inside product. Um, you will also have a chief customer officer, possibly. And the moment you get that kind of thing, well, now who handles, now who looks after Salesforce, which of those three people should do it? In my view, none of them. In your case, as particularly as, as we said earlier, you're very operatively, logically driven revenue leader, it makes perfect sense for you to hold on to that. I would still make an argument against it, but I don't think it's a bad choice. You asked me about lessons learned to kick this off from working with so many different organizations. I would say another lesson is that there's always more than one way to do something. 
what's important is that you're achieving the goals. And half of this is about how you structure things. And the other half is about the human beings that are inside that structure. And there is no point in imposing a rigid structure that you read about on LinkedIn on individuals that have very disparate skill sets. It doesn't make any sense. And one last thing was really the data quality issue. Who owns it and how do you ensure it stays meaningful and valuable data? If data quality is an issue, which it is in so many places, the focus is not who should own this. The focus is what is the objective and how are we going to measure whether we've succeeded and what are the tasks that need to be done to ensure that that works. And once we've understood what that is, then we can assign it to one of the teams. Now, if operations are holding a large number of people and in the structure that I would talk about, I would automatically put it to operations. If you are an organization listening to this today and you've got a RevOps team in your revenue department, then I wouldn't be passing the buck across to operations. Obviously, you handle it in your revenue operations team, and that's how most organizations are structured today. But in general, I would prefer it to be the person who thinks like a chief operating officer, which is generally the chief operating officer. Just one, one aside on this, think about How many sales leaders do you know who've got a RevOps manager working for them or sales ops manager working for them and don't really know how to do their one-to-ones with them and how to get the best out of that individual? They're brilliant at managing salespeople and sales teams and maybe even customer success, but it's this kind of weird person on the corner who has a completely different brain and thinks in a different way. And I really respect them, but I'm not quite sure how to add value to them seems to me that that person is often going to get more value from someone who is a like tenured professional in that space. So I think, and maybe I'm doing a disservice to other COOs, because as we all know, every CEO is different. Backgrounds are totally different where we've come from. I'm just kind of assuming that there are some out there that maybe haven't come up through sales and revenue and the commercial end of the business. If that's the case, What are some good resources to help skill yourself up in understanding sales and I I guess particularly SaaS sales? I think I'd go up one level, first of all. As a CEO or founder, building predictability in an organization, one of your core objectives is to figure out what kind of skills and attributes am I going to need in my senior organization over the next two years? It's hard to do that in the current environment because we're all battling the short term. It's not very useful to say how you're going to behave in a battle in a year's time when you're currently backs to the wall fighting now, but finding strategic planning space to think about that future set and then understanding the kind of people that would fit into that. The reason I raise that is because I would argue that in the kind of organization I would run, I don't think I would want a COO that didn't have the already the understanding of how sales operations works, of how marketing sales, customer success interlock. If we're talking to um, a COO who doesn't have that kind of experience, I think what I would be doing is going to get a mentor really, really fast. And I'm not talking about someone like me. I'm talking about someone that's been a COO in the role that you're doing for a couple of years already. They've done the bit that you've done. They know the things that you don't know. Um, When I interview people for... um, coaching spots, they tend to say, I don't know what I don't know. And I'm hoping that you can help with that, Pete. Well, 
that's what they need in an operations context. Someone that can prepare you for the kind of errors that you might make, the mistakes that others have made, and make sure that you see round corners to have everything prepared and you're on top of things. You would probably want to do some reading as well. And there aren't that many really good data-driven books, but you know, the obvious one is Mark Burge's Sales Acceleration Formula. So maybe one other aspect to maybe ask about is the financial forecast, because oftentimes that financial forecast is a critical piece for the sales leader to truly understand the assumptions that are built into that forecast, whereby they're not being caught out in terms of their quotas and whatever else is being set for them in terms of their goals. If you have a really strong chief financial officer later stage, that chief financial officer can very strategically partner with the CRO to really unpack those assumptions make sure whatever's being put into that forecast makes tremendous sense and there's a real understanding of what those assumptions are. If you don't have a CFO at that level, then usually the opt-in is usually the COO in this case to really link things together holistically where they're like, all right, we have a a VP of finance that's very good at finance and very good at modeling, but they're not particularly good at understanding assumptions around the business, in particular the sales side or commercial side. And the CEO becomes a real partner to the CRO to really make sure that it's all hooked together, I guess. Do you have any observations on that? I'm really glad you asked that question. I'm going to do a bit of a Beth here at first before I completely agree with you, which is when I was a COO, I wanted to completely own all of that myself, but because I'm pretty good at that kind of stuff and I teach that kind of stuff on my course and people uh, spend a lot of time talking to me and asking me questions, which is kind of the point, really. Most people that I work with don't have a good forecasting strategy. If you asked a question in an interview, you say to them, Tell me about your forecasting model and tell me about two or three models that you discarded in favor of the one that you're using. Like most people are like, what? There's more than one? I'm not even sure I can describe one to you. And what most people end up doing is sort of talking, uh, walking you through the language that Salesforce has, and they start talking about upside and all this kind of thing. So if my experience is accurate, that the majority of revenue leaders end up being a bit like that. In other words, they are salespeople that were really good managers, then they became good VPs, or they're tactically competent, but they've never really had that grounding, then the COO is incredibly useful here because what I would be doing as a COO is thinking in frameworks and models. What is our forecasting model? How does it work? What are the components? Uh, It should be that once it's well-established, you should be able to send the COO off on holiday and still deliver a forecast because the model is exactly the same. As long as deals, um, opportunities are passing through the gateways correctly because the sales managers are controlling those bottlenecks, then everything by the time you're at a certain stage should be predictable. So that sounds great. And I'm I'm no doubt that you run your team in that way. I certainly did with mine. But most sales leaders can't do that. At least they struggle to do that. And so that COO is a really useful connector, particularly, Brandon, as you said, the VP finance. And again, if we're talking here about startups anywhere between seed stage and sort of B or just after B, you may well just have a VP finance who perhaps is at this level for the first time. And whilst they're perfectly capable of adding numbers up and being very, very competent at doing their job, they don't really understand the process of forecasting either. So a first-class COO who can join the dots between the two and encourage the two to come to a point where there is a shared framework that we can agree upon. Ultimately, what do you need? You need the COO to go to the board meeting and be broadly right every single quarter. And if they're not right, they tend to shout and blame somebody and it's probably going to be the sales leader. And 
they would be right. It is your job to be able to predict the future. So that's where that CEO comes in and, and plugs that learning gap. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's nothing more embarrassing in the board meetings when the board members are calling out the CEO or the CRO around numbers and metrics where they have no idea what's going on. They're like, how about this? How about that? Well, we don't know exactly. We'll get back to you. <laughs> Which is how VPs of sales get fired, often because CEOs get embarrassed and uh, they're both culpable. There's no excuse for sending a CEO into a board meeting unprepared, and there's no excuse for throwing your VP sales under the bus either. A different thought occurs to me as you're just talking, but when you have a client that comes to you and says, look, Pete, it's not growth at all costs anymore. We need to get more commercially efficient. How do we do that? And if we're going to do tactics A, B, and C, how do we really measure ourselves? And there's all sorts of measurements to think about, I guess, from a sales marketing perspective. But, but when you have that client come to you, Pete, we need to get more commercially efficient. What do you do? What's your, your response? I mean, people do come and say that quite a lot. And the, the first thing I think that has to happen is we have to understand well, what, what are the symptoms? What do you believe is not commercially efficient? And typically what they mean by that is salespeople are missing quota. One of the most interesting but common symptoms at the moment is deals which are slipping forward. When I worked in France, we used to call it glissé, stuff that disappears off into the future. And it's a silent killer because it keeps your pipeline nice and full, but never quite closes. So they come with those kind of symptoms. And so my question is always, if your product was so mission critical that when you showed it to a prospect, they were like, wow, I can't be without this. Or when a customer had it, they were like, no matter what happens to my budget, I'm keeping hold of product X. What does that look like? Does it look like that? today what do those people say why do prospects say we'll stick with what we've got or we won't buy anything at the moment which is much more common actually than i'm going to go with your competitor and they often have reasonably good answers to that but then as you interview the rest of the executives independently of one another you end up getting a whole bunch of different answers and i've never once done this and discovered gosh they know exactly what the reason is they all agree perfectly. They all use exactly the same words. They understand why their product achieves the three big goals, which is one, how is it mission critical to the people that we're serving? Number two, how is it rare? In other words, how are we providing this in a way that no one else does? And number three, immunity. Like, How is it built in such a way that people can't copy it in a few weeks later? The three of us can't raise a little bit of money and say, that's a nice idea. Let's have a crack at that. How, do, how is that prevented? They all have different answers. And so I always take them back to the beginning. And we will walk through a process, which takes quite a while. And it tends to start with two parallel items. The first is, can you describe the pain that is being resolved by your product? And everybody gives a different answer. They're all connected. I mean, they're not completely disparate, but they're all a different answer. And once they've talked about that pain, then I ask them to give it a score out of 10. They all give it different scores, and it's normally like 8 or 9 out of 10. So then I provide them with a scale to score it, and now it's a little bit easier to score. I've built my own scoring system for pain. What they tend not to be able to do is the next step, because actually people don't act on pain, even though like every book you ever read will tell you that we act on pain just because that's how humans operate doesn't mean it's how we actually operate in a B2B world. We operate on risk. And so if you walk out of your door and stub your toe in a moment, 
that will be ridiculously painful. You'd be leaping around cursing. You won't go to hospital even if you've broken it because the hospital doesn't do anything about it. So the, the pain is not going to make you act. It's just going to make you jump around and curse a little bit. If, on the other hand, you feel a pain in your chest, probably not as intense as the pain in your foot, but you're instantly going to worry. Gosh, it could be indigestion, but what if it's my heart? I'm going to have a heart attack. What if I'm going to die? So it's the risk that makes you do something. It's the risk that makes you stop drinking, stop smoking, exercise more, sleep better, go to the hospital, see your doctor. So I'm trying to walk the organization through this process that says, well, what is the pain that your prospect experiences? What's the risk that they will fail to avoid if they don't act on the pain? But we can go even further than that. Like, What's strategically driving that risk? If you think about heart pain, Why? was probably because of bad health habits, maybe. Perhaps it's because of stress. Perhaps it's because you're not sleeping well. Uh, these are the strategic drivers, and these are the things that actually need to be altered or resolved if you're going to solve the risk. And those things have got to be happening for a reason anyway. Like There must be something that's causing those. Maybe like, you're working really hard, or you've got a relationship issue, or there's money problems. Uh, these are the, like, the root causes, the storms that are causing this to happen. And so... I get very concerned when organizations spend too much time trying to fix the symptoms because there are lots of obvious symptom fixes. Like, we're not very efficient. Let's get rid of our SDRs because they're expensive. Let's reduce the marketing budget. Maybe those are the right things to do. This is a bit like going for a massage instead of going to the physio. Like, it feels really nice and you probably feel a bit better for an hour, but you're not going to fix anything. You're going to have to go back again the following week. So go back to the root causes and deal with those first. Because what comes out of that is the core value that you're providing. And I try and get them to like distribute those into three core things that they do that genuinely solve the problem. And then, Brandon, you were talking about measures and ways of becoming more efficient. My co-founder, Emily, and I were in Croatia with a company the other day launching a whole bunch of work we've done them, and they told us average contract value has almost doubled. Close rates have gone up dramatically. Sales cycles stayed about the same, but you know we're okay with that. The quantity of ICP-driven opportunities has gone up, and those close more quickly than the others. So they're finding ways to say, "Ah, oh, this is working. Our sales velocity is working. It means our sales team operating more efficiently." Once you've done all that strategy work, then you can look at your go-to-market planning, and then you can say, "Well, now we have chosen our ICP, and we know the casualty that is experiencing the pain." And we are able to understand the risk that is driving that pain. What's the best way to get to them? Is it a sales development team? Maybe the answer is yes, but you know that's like seventy thousand dollars a person. So that's a lot of dollars to get opportunities. So what equivalent return can we get from investing that seventy thousand dollars in a different part of demand generation or a different part of demand? capture or an often forgotten part let's do a lot of customer marketing and start getting them to do referrals to their friends and colleagues so that we have people who actually want to talk to us and we have less wasted time so i mean literally a million different tactics you could deploy but that's the point i could advise people to deploy tactics very easily and they'd probably believe me and to start doing it but the problem is that we don't really know what's going to work and so you've got to go back to those root causes and so uh, bringing this back to the chief operations operations officer, that's the kind of level-headed thinking that we need from someone who is able to say, well, what really is at the heart of this? What is the root cause? 
how do we set ourselves up around the root cause as leanly as possible? And then how are we going to do the two things that matter afterwards? One is measure the early green shoots, the early indicators to see if we, because the only thing you know about strategy is you're definitely wrong. So we're going to have certainly done, made some wrong steps. And then ultimately the KPIs that come at the end, you know, the lagging indicators that like revenue that prove that we've done that right. That's where I would go. I hope that's not too deep or long an answer for the question. I think it's a very long answer, but a very valuable one. So <laughs> well worth it. Pete, I'd love to be able to ask you some more questions, but very conscious of your time. And we have run out of our allotted slot today. So thank you so much. Love having conversations with you. Such a treat. We have covered so much today. If our listeners were only to take away one thing, what would it be? It's what we started with. I've never said to someone, focus is important, and they have said, oh, no, it's, it's really not. And no one would ever reply like that. And then you look at their agenda and you're like, man, how are you fitting all of this in? This is insane. Like, how do you ever prepare? I work with a lot of executives through my block planning method, which just helps them to focus every 15 minutes of their time on one of those three core objectives. With the exception of the context, there's always context, of course, but making sure that you focus your time. And, you know, when you talk about 15 minute blocks, it doesn't mean having 15 minute meetings. It means making sure that every 15 minutes is valuable during the time that you've set aside for work. What most of us do, though, is we just try and fit things in. We try and do inbox zero, which is stupid. Like, How do we know that the emails are going to be uh, inside those three objectives? Or we try and complete a task list. Focusing on the three things that really matter and outsourcing or distributing everything else. Like, get an assistant. Like, Don't mess around with your diary. It's much more cost-effective to have someone doing one day a week for you who can run your diary so you can be focused on other stuff focus 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 because those that win will have focused the best and we all know that there are loads of startups out there with brilliant ideas that don't win and it's always because they execute badly and the root of good execution is focus uh, that is a, a lovely way to finish it so thank you mr p crosby for joining us on the operations room if you like what you hear uh, please leave us a comment or uh, subscribe and in particular we love comments. Comment away. Comments are fantastic. And we'll definitely respond back to comments that are made. With that, we will see you next week.